the Ortho PAC hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome back listeners. We're with Dr. Silverberg and we're talking about trauma imaging. Part one, we talked a lot about the mechanics of the MRIs and the fat saturations, T1, T2, what's good for different things. So if we start talking more clinical specifics, like how do you image certain things? And you brought this up, and I thought it was a really good point in your talk, and I, I was hoping you could expand on it a little bit. Pediatric patients versus adults, you know, what, what are some of the different kind of differences in the imaging characteristics? And you also mentioned a specific thing called a tug lesion, which, you know, can be misinterpreted as a bone lesion. So I was hoping you might go through that for our listeners and just define the differences and, and kind of how that works. Yeah, so you know, epiphyses and the physis can be challenging to to interpret, especially if you're not frequently seeing uh, kind of moderate to higher volume of these cases you know, during your day to day routine. And the reason is there are variations of normal that actually can appear pathologic, and and oftentimes, especially as a muscular neurologist, we get these cases as as second opinions where you know the finding that was called doesn't really fit the patient. And so, you know, as long as we have some awareness that variations exist that can appear pathologic, at least we can add that to our differential. A couple examples, you know, the way the physis closes is not always symmetric. We see that in the ankle, something called cumps bump, where there's asymmetric closure on one side of the physis compared to the other. And sometimes that can confuse with a physical injury. Epiphyses can be asymmetric and very irregular normally, just as the patient goes through skeletal maturation. One of the things I mentioned uh, in the lecture was uh, an entity called, and, and again, I think this is a funny name because it's literally a long name and it's very descriptive, but it, it uh, is a mouthful to say, but it's normal developmental regularity of the femoral condyles. And basically what that says is that there is a normal growth variant, a normal developmental variant as the patient, the skeletally immature patient matures in the femoral condyles that can be misdiagnosed as an osteochondral lesion. Again, when we take a step back from the images and we just look at the patient and we look at how that patient skeletal maturation process should occur, the subchondral bone is essentially where bone meets cartilage. Beneath that, in the physis, we have the metaphysis and this interface, which is a, called a zona provisional calcification, which is where the bone is, is elongating, growing, and, and, and ossifying. So on x-ray, subchondral bone plate can look irregular because it's forming. And especially, you know, if you look at like a frontal or tunnel view of the knee, it can look irregular and it can look like an osteochondral lesion. I think, you know, certainly if you see irregularity, it's better to at least work it up as an osteochondral lesion. Lateral view on an x-ray of the knee can often be helpful in these skeletally immature patients, but it's not always apparent. Again, taking a step back from the imaging and just looking at the pathology, a true osteochondral lesion of the femoral condyle is typically along the weight-bearing surface. Most commonly, I'm sure you guys know, is the lateral weight-bearing surface of the medial femoral condyle. And by definition, the overlying cartilages should be involved. Normal developmental regularity is typically on a non-weight-bearing surface, and the overlying cartilage is normal. And that's important to, to think about because as we if you guys use staging for osteochondral lesions, that's that's a great thing to know. But if you don't, it's it's not a big deal. It's just if we look at staging, staging always starts with the cartilage and then it goes to subchondral bone. So if the cartilage overlying is normal, that should give us pause and say, well, you know, it looks like an osteochondral lesion, but the cartilage is normal. That doesn't really fit. When we're looking at these pediatric injuries and these pediatric patients and imaging findings, in the back of your mind, it should always you should always have a, a question of well, could this be a developmental variant? Could this just be normal? There are so many examples of this and, and they do get overcalled, unfortunately. And I don't want to dissuade anyone from working something up that they think is actually pathologic. But it's important to know that a lot of these things can, that are normal can mimic pathology. 
examples top of my head, there's a, something called a pseudo defect at the capitellum, which can look like an osteochondral injury. The difference is, it's, again, not along the cartilage surface. There's something that unfortunately is very frequently called pathological, which is not, which is closure of the ischiopubic synchondrosis. So, so essentially along the infrapubic ramus, there's an area in kids where the, the synchondrosis or the cartilage interface between two areas of bone that are not completely ossified yet forms irregularly. And it happens all the time. And, you know, it gets called as an inferior pubic ramus fracture. But you'll get them in patients that have no risk factors for that. You know, an inferior pubic ramus fracture in a kid is a pretty significant injury, usually such with a straddle injury and you get potential genital urinary injuries. But that's a great example of something that just looks very irregular and very abnormal but it's just a variant and normal developmental uh, uh, variation. So to get to your question, just kind of wraps up about tug lesions. These are also called cortical avulsion injuries, which I, I think is a better term. The older term is cortical desmoid. We don't really use that term anymore. But when we think of injuries in the musculoskeletal system, it's important to, to point out that injuries typically occur at the weakest link. So in the myotennis unit, which runs from bone to muscle, in adults, you know, us, usually the site of the weakest link is the myotennis junction. So typically in, in myotennis unit injury for adults, we're looking at the myotennis junction where the muscle meets tendon. In kids, you know, and, that, and the reason being is that we have a mature skeleton. Our bones are well-formed. They're higher density. So they're less prone to injury than kids. In kids, they have less dense bones. They're more porous. So instead of their injury, their weakest link occurring at the myotennis junction, their weakest link is bone. So in kids, when that tendon and bone interface, where the tendon attaches to bone at the periosteum is overloaded, again, going back to the medial table stress syndrome example, the periosteum is taking the brunt of that force. So when we're looking at imaging and we're looking for abnormalities in kids, we're going to focus on that periosteal interface, the, the evulsions. That's why evulsions are way more common in kids than adults, is that's their weakest link. Kind of revisiting the mechanostat theory, if that force, that, that tug, that, that tendon or ligament attachment tugging on that periosteum isn't enough to evolve bone, but it is overloading the periosteum, that bone, that periosteum starts to remodel. And then when it remodels, it deposes more bone. It lays down bone. And what we see on imaging are these so-called tug lesions or cortical avulsion injuries, where we get the cortex that look like it's protruding out. But the key is that it's protruding out where a tendon attaches. It's protruding out where a ligament attaches. These sometimes get called as osteochondral lesions, you know, or, or excuse me, not osteochondral lesions, osteochondromas, right? Osteochondromas are, are technically a bone tumor that grows out from the medullary cavity and contains cortex. But the difference between a tug lesion or a cortical avulsion injury and an osteochondroma is that an osteochondroma is communicating with the medullary cavity. These tug lesions are purely cortical periosteal lesions. They don't communicate with the medullary cavity. And the key is that they're associated with tendon or ligament attachments. So this, again, ties together all these concepts. In mechanostat theory, we're overloading the, the weakest link in a skeletally mature patient, which is a periosteum. That bone remodels, forms more bone, deposes you know, a new periosteal bone. It goes along the ligament attachment. It's the big outjutting bone you know, osteoscrescence that looks like a bone tumor. So again, we want to put, kind of understand mechanostat. We want to put these things in context and we want to make sure it applies to the patient. We're not treating an image, we're treating the patient. We'll get a lot of these things. They don't go away, by the way. You know, so we get a lot of these patients that come in, they don't recall an injury. Uh, they didn't fall down. They didn't do anything. And they say, oh, you know, I've had this chronic posterior thigh pain for ages. They'll get a CAT scan or get a, a, an x-ray and you'll see this big osteoscrest along the posterior aspect of the proximal or mid to proximal tibial diaphysis. And they, they say, oh, I think it's an osteochondroma. There are a lot of attachments there, you know, along the posterior aspect of the femur, the linea aspera, one of which is this structure called the lateral femoral intramuscular septum. And 
patients oftentimes, especially active in younger ages, will overload that area. They're called thigh splints. And you'll get the periosteum that has now formed new bone. But then they, they stop being active. They get in adulthood like most of us and they stop exercising as much as they should. But that thing is still there. And they happen to get imaged for a different reason and we see it. So again, it's really important with an image to put the findings in context to match the patient. And these, you know, skeletally mature patients that have normal variants that look like pathology, if it doesn't fit, a variant is a pretty good explanation. If this bone lesion, this tug lesion in an adult or a young patient doesn't fit, it's a pretty good explanation. So it's kind of important to understand where the weakest link is and how to kind of process these things so that we can make it fit the patient rather than taking something that doesn't fit and calling it pathologic. You have to know all of the the kind of background, the, you know, the T1, the T2, the theories, and kind of put all that together to figure out what this probably is. It's fascinating. You outline some different types of trauma and how things might appear, and that might be an interesting way to go forward. You talked about the tibia stress reactions, and you had some slides on a foot stress fracture. And this is another thing that you uh, gave an example of a pivot shift ACL tear and a lateral patella dislocations. What kinds of things would you expect to find as far as T1, T2, and how would the image appear to you if you were looking at those types of injuries? I think it's important. We can we can definitely talk about the imaging appearance, but it's also important to talk about the how we can relate what we find to the mechanism of injury. And the mechanism of injury, the reason that's important for imaging is it, it not only tells us what happened, but it also says, okay, if that is injury happened, I know there are associated injuries with that mechanism. Let me look for those as well. So it increases your sensitivity. You're going to pick up other injuries if we can understand the mechanism. And one of the ways we understand the mechanism is through bone contusions. So bone conditions, as I mentioned, you know, it's edema. It's a microtrabecular fracture in areas of bone, but they're separated. So they're not going to form one contiguous fracture line. And since they are edema and they contain fluid, they're going to be bright on fluid-sensitive sequences. Now, we do want to fat suppress those fluid-sensitive sequences because if it's bright, you know, edema or bright fluid, and we have bright fat in the medullary cavity, which we haven't suppressed, we're not going to see it. So we're, when we're talking about bone conditions on a fluid-sensitive sequence, that's a fat-suppressed fluid-sensitive sequence. With regard to, to evaluating them, it's also important to make sure that these occur where contusions should occur. And what I mean by that is subcortical or subchondral. Bone contusions don't happen deep in the medullary cavity of bone. Then we have to start thinking about other things. They're going to be at areas where direct impact can occur. So along the weight-bearing surface, subchondral, or along a, a subcortical area where there is direct trauma. And when we see these contusions, contusions typically happen because of a impact injury. So there are going to be matching contusions, so to speak, or kissing contusions in, in certain injuries. So in the pivot shift mechanism of injury for an ACL tear, typically we have internal rotation of the tibia, external rotation of the femur, and anterior translation of the, the proximal tibia. When that comes back into place, meaning the tibia translates then posteriorly, the femur rotates internally, the uh, tibia rotates externally, the posterior aspect of the tibia hits the anterior aspect of lateral femoral condyle when it comes back into place or reduces, so to speak. Those are going to create a very characteristic contusion pattern. The lateral femoral condyle in an area called the terminal sulcus and the postlateral tibial plateau are going to show contusions. Again, it'll be subchondral or it'll be subcortical. And that tells us that the mechanism for an ACL tear has occurred. So when we see that contusion pattern, our sensitivity and specificity for diagnosing ACL is going to increase even if we haven't even looked at the ACL 
you know, on, on, an, on an image. It's just going to put in the back of our mind that the pretest probability of an ACL tear being present is extremely high. In addition to that, there are coexisting injuries that often occur with ACL tears, meniscal tears, ligament injuries, particularly postlateral corner. And now we're going to start scrutinizing that in a little more detail as well. So the contusions not only give us insight to an injury because they're contused, they also give us insight to associated injuries, which we should then look for. In terms of lateral patellar subluxation, same concept. The medial stabilizers, uh, the soft tissue medial stabilizers of the knee are kind of the weakest link. So typically the patella is going to translate laterally. Most most translateral patellar dislocation injuries are going to be lateral. So in that case, when the patella translates out laterally, the medial part of it contuses the lateral femoral condyle on its way back in, on its way back to reducing. Also, the medial stabilizers, because they've been stretched, are going to be injured. So when we see that contusion pattern, we know there's likely been a transatlateral patellar dislocation event, and we're going to look for our associate injuries. The medial patellofemoral uh, ligament is the most important soft tissue stabilizer. Typically lives under the vastus medialis obliquus. So we're going to go right to that image, usually on an axial or a sagittal, and we're going to look at that structure and see, is it torn? Not only do these contusions tell us what happened, but it tells us what else we should look for because we know there are associated injuries that occur in the presence of that mechanism of injury. In terms of stress fractures, I know we, we kind of talked about that before, but again, you know, going to that mechanostat theory, stress injuries, not, not direct trauma as in contusions, but stress injuries where there's chronic repetitive microtrauma typically occur over time. So that bone is being overloaded. We're going to look for areas that are overloaded. And typically that's weight-bearing surfaces or it's an area where the the you know the periosteum is overloaded and a muscle attachment. So they differ in, in contusions in their location, but they're both going to be bright entities on a fluid sensitive sequence. Great images for this. Uh, again, listeners, take a look at our YouTube channel. We have some images Dr. Silverberg provided for us. And Dr. Silverberg spent a lot of time talking about bright and dark early on, the differences and how you use those different types of image sequencing to come up with uh, fractures. And we'll have some images there. I wanted to skip ahead a little bit and talk about rotator cuff because I you know, work with a shoulder guy. So we did a lot of rotator cuffs and I, it's just interesting. One of the things you had mentioned was the Molary and Curly, and I'm old enough to remember the three stooges uh, <laughs> watching them many times, but, but I really like that analogy. So would you mind going through your thought processes on tendinosis versus partial tear versus full thickness tears? And how do you kind of fish those things out? Sure. You know, I mentioned mechanostat kind of over and over, and, and I applied it to bone. But the nice thing about mechanostat theory versus Wolf's Law is that mechanostat actually applies to many tissue types, and tendons are included. Tendons degenerate over time. They also remodel. But unfortunately for us, they don't remodel the way that bones do. They typically will never look the same as a normal need of tendon. Typically, it's a degenerated tendon and tears. Like we don't, you don't often see tendon tears in a 15-year-old athlete, you know, because they haven't lived long enough to develop the degree of degeneration caused or required tear, unless, you know, there's high velocity or very high stress trauma. They're just not going to have, they're going to have, a, you know, normal healthy tendon that really is not predisposed to tears. So when we, we think of a tendon from that perspective, we have to then say, okay, well, what does degeneration look like? On uh, fluid sensitive sequences, you know, typically is where we're going to evaluate tendons because we talked about T1 being hypersensitive. A tendon is dark normally. So the process of degeneration increases that signal, meaning it causes it to be slightly brighter, but also it causes thickening because thickening means that there's been some degree of remodeling. That tendon is trying to compensate for the chronic repetitive force that it's been subjected to. 
it's also going to be irregular. Now, the key is that in a thickened tendon that's irregular and there's bright signal, how bright is that signal? And that kind of goes back to our discussion of what do we, what, what constitutes something being bright and what constitutes something being dark. So relative to, to, to skeletal muscle, you know, something being brighter than skeletal muscle is bright. However, there are degrees. So when we talk about tendinosis, that bright signal in tendon is going to be less bright than fluid. And that's an important distinction. Tears, on the other hand, are going to show bright signal in, in that dark tendon as well, but they're going to be equal to fluid. And the nice thing about imaging tendons is that we're almost always around a joint and we're almost always around a tendon sheath somewhere. So we have areas where we can look for fluid as our benchmark. We look at that brightness in that joint fluid, or we look at the brightness in that tendon sheath for our kind of benchmark, we compare it to the, the fluid, the signal, and the brightness in an abnormal tendon, that helps to distinguish if something as tendinosis or tear. And that's a generalization. There are definitely some, uh, some exceptions to that. But as a general rule, that's a very good way of kind of approaching tendinosis versus tear. Tendinosis can be thickened, abnormal signal that's not as bright as fluid. A tendon, you know, is going to show uh, an abnormality that is bright as fluid. And obviously, if we have discontinuity, it's easy. That's a tear. That's a tear. In terms of partial thickness or full thickness, we really do very well with full thickness tears on non-arthrogram images. Partial thickness tears, we really do well, but it depends on the training of the radiologist reading it. But they both, all of those concepts apply to partial or full thickness tears regardless. I was mentioned, you know, in terms of the, the Three Stooges approach that earlier there's a, there a saying that having one view is almost as bad as having no view. And that is true for the shoulder. Most people tend to get comfortable with the coronal view when they're looking at rotator cuff pathology. And it's great. And, and, and getting comfortable with that really, you know, helps confidence. It helps people to evaluate the cuff, but it's limiting. And so another plane to get comfortable with that can really improve performance is the sagittal plane. And most people are not comfortable with the sagittal plane, usually just because it's not, uh, you know, reviewed as frequently. But one, one way of going through that is that so-called Three Stooges approach. And I have, to, I have to say, I have to give appropriate credit. I was taught this from a guy named Bill Morrison, who's the director of muscular radiology at Thomas Jefferson University. And I believe it was his idea original, see, originally, so I can't claim that I came up with it. I just like it enough. I find it useful enough. And I think people uh, enjoy it enough that I, I repeat it. So I, I stole the idea from him to give full credit. For those of you that, that don't know the Three Stooges, you could literally just Google the Three Stooges, and there's there's three of them, obviously, uh, as in the name. Uh, and starting with the, the first one, Mo. Mo has a full head of hair. Larry is sort of bald in the middle and has hair on either side, and Curly has no hair. So if we think of the humeral head as the head of one of the Three Stooges, and think of their hair as the dark signal in the tendon, in the normal tendon of the rotator cuff covering that humeral head, we can use their haircuts to understand the importance of the sagittal view. So a normal rotator cuff is Mo, where the humeral head is his head, the, the full coverage of hair or the dark signal on the uh, fluid sense sequence is the rotator cuff. And we don't see anything, we don't see any missing hair, so to speak. We don't see any bright signal. A full thickness tear, medial to lateral thickness, but partial width, meaning only part of the anterior to posterior width of the tear is Larry's haircut, where the missing hair, the bald area, is his is the full thickness component, but there's still tear, there's still intact cuff on either side of the tear. And then you have the curly, which is essentially a massive rotator cuff tear where there's no hair covering the humeral head, or there's no hair covering the hair of the three stooges. I, I'm not sure again, if the, the three stooges are public domain or copyrighted, but certainly I think posting a picture of them, I included one in my lecture would be really illustrates this concept. But, you know, this is just kind of uh, another uh, reference to that fact that 
and, and this is goes for any body part. When when people start to evaluate MRI or even X-ray or CAT scan, they really get comfortable usually with one plane. ACL is a perfect example. And I, in my lecture, I gave another example of why it can sometimes be a big pitfall to only get comfortable with imaging the ACL and the sagittal view or only calling ACL pathology on the sagittal view is that we can miss things. And really, it, it behooves everyone to get comfortable with at least more than one plane. Oftentimes, all three planes will, will you know, if you're, if you're comfortable with all three planes, it's very uncommon to miss things or to undercall or overcall things. So in terms of the sagittal view on uh, shoulder study, shoulder MRI, using this method, I think is very helpful as an introduction to, to getting comfortable with calling full thickness tears. I, I love it. You know, any mnemonic or any visual that will help me to remember something is, you know, I, I use it constantly and this is going to be something I won't forget. And listeners who knew Mo, uh, Larry and Curly were part of MRI imaging. But <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's, it's great. Dr. Silverberg, thank you so much. Likewise. Thank you guys. And I really appreciate it. Listeners follow along on our YouTube channel. We'll have several images of Dr. Silverberg's talk that correlate with the podcast. So please follow along there. And for our listeners that would like to see Dr. Silverberg's presentation at our conference, again, it'll be on our website soon. Our annual meeting this year is called Ortho and Indy. It's from August 21st through August 25th. The venue is the JW Marriott. Not only do we have world-class speakers, we have workshops, optional mini sessions, food, social events. There's just tons of things going on. We hope to see you there.